Revelation chapter 6. I'm going to read the entire chapter. It says, And when I saw the Lamb open one of the seals, I heard as it were the sound of the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. And when he had opened the second seal, I, saw, I heard the second beast say, Come and see. There were another horse that was red, and power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, and that they should kill one another. And there was given unto him a great sword. And when he had opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, Come and see. And I beheld, and lo, a black horse, and he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand, and heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, A measure of wheat for a penny, and three measures of barley for a penny, and see thou hurt not the oil and the wine. And when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth beast say, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and his name that sat on him was Death, and hell followed him. Power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth to kill with the sword and with hunger and with death and with the beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? White robes were given unto every one of them, and it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a season, little season, till their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. And I beheld, and lo, when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, the moon became as blood, and the stars of heaven fell onto the earth, even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs when she is shaken of a mighty wind. And the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together, and every mountain and island removed out of their places. And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman, and every free man, hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? Title of the message tonight, simply the judgment of the Lamb. The judgment of the Lamb. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for your opportunity we have to open your precious word. Thank you for the testimonies of how you worked in our hearts and lives this week. And I pray that you help us, Father, to just to, to grow in our grace and knowledge of thee and be faithful and give us wisdom and guidance day by day as he leads us. And Lord, we pray as we look in the word of God tonight that we be encouraged and challenged and as we consider the judgment of the Lamb that's yet to come, help us to be witnesses and testimonies for you, to those around us that know thee not, that they might escape the judgment of Almighty God, the, the Lamb of God, uh, who purchased their redemption. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as we consider this chapter tonight, you know, well, this is really the beginning of God pouring out his judgment on an unbelieving world. Of course, the, the rapture of the saints has taken place. You know, we see the picture of that in Revelation chapter 4 and 5, the scenes in heaven. So the saints are in heaven. The saved of the, the age of grace and, and all the ages prior are in heaven. There will be people saved during the tribulation period. In fact, 
verses 9, 10, 11 are talking about people saved during this time. I do believe. But what transpires now, remember that there was a, there was a book that was no man could find could be found to open it in chapter 5, and then uh, the, the, the line of the tribe of Judah came forth. Uh, the lamb was found to be able to open the book. And you know, we, we compared it, or said it was like the title deed of the earth where, where God is going to op- begin to open the book and reclaim that which he created, that which was his, which he had given to man and given under the man's dominion, and that was the earth. The earth was given over to the dominion of man, and he ceded that in his sin to the old devil. And, of course, the devil is called the god of this world. But now the Lord is going to take back and bring... Uh, and destroy all the kingdoms of the world and set up his kingdom. So he's beginning the judgment. The judgment of that is what we're beginning to see here. And this course takes place during what we call the tribulation period. It'll be a period of seven years' time, spoken of in Daniel. Uh, it's called the 70th week of Daniel's 70 weeks of years. But anyway, as we consider this tonight, first of all, I want to notice the, the first thing the judge. In verse 1, And when I, I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard as it were the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. The judge is the Lamb. Now, most people when they think about the Lamb of God, they don't think of him as a judge. A righteous judge, as is pictured in Revelation chapter 1. You know, where he, we've read this morning where he's described, uh, you know, his eyes as a flame of fire and a sword out of his mouth. And we're talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, we like to refer to him as the lovely Lord Jesus. And he is altogether lovely. He is that friend that sticketh closer than brother. But he is also the judge, the one who's going to judge this wicked world for their rejection of him. You know, it, again, verse, seven, verse 16 says, And said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sateth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Do you mean to tell me that Jesus would take vengeance on those, his enemies? You know, the greatest insult of all time is to reject one who died in your place. You know, the greatest insult, if you were were to be sentenced in a court of law and somebody offered to pay your crime, it would be an insult. It would be an insult of insults to reject it. And it is the Lamb here that's opening these sealed judgments into the world to judge the unbelieving wicked. You know, again, you know, it is the Lamb. And uh, in chapter 15... Verses 1 through 3, uh, again it says, you know, talking about the lamb, 
It says, And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire, and them that had gotten the victory over the beast, and over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, stand on the sea of glass, having the harps of God. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty, just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. So again, it's the Lamb that is opening these seals. Of course, he's going to open these. There's seven seals, and the seventh seal opens the seven trumpet judgments, and the seventh trumpet opens the seven vile judgments. So he's it's like peeling off, and he's going to, as he opens one, there's another to follow, and another to follow, and another to follow. And, and the, the purpose of the judgment is to bring to an end the wickedness of mankind and its opposition to God. This is often, this is referred to sometimes in the Bible as a day of vengeance. In uh, Isaiah 63, Isaiah chapter 63, again, speaking of the Lord Jesus here in this, in this passage, Isaiah 61, I'm sorry, Isaiah 61, and verses 1 through 3, it says, The spear of the Lord, of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are blind, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Now, if you would go to Luke chapter 4, Jesus went into the synagogue in Nazareth, and, he, and there was given him the book, and he opened it, and he, and he read this passage of Scripture, but he stopped at the comma where, uh, after he said, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. He stopped right there. And then he said this, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. And he said, I'm the one that is sent to bring good tidings to the meek, to bind up the brokenhearted, to claim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to them that are blind, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. It is here. But you know what else is yet to come? the day of vengeance of our God. And that's what we are now in Revelation chapter 6. We are at the day of vengeance of our God. And it's the same Jesus who proclaimed the acceptable year of the Lord who is going to execute the day of vengeance of our God. Titus, or not Titus, 2 Thessalonians chapter uh, 1 also speaks of this. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul, in writing to the church at Thessalonica, in the midst of their, their trials and their tribulations and their persecutions, he reminds them that one day the Lord is going to come back and take care of all this when he says in verse 6, 2 Thessalonians 1, 6, Seeing is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. To you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power, when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you was believed on that day. You know, he says, you can rest in this, that one day the Lord is coming back and he's going to take vengeance on them that know not God and that trouble you. 
that trouble you. That same Jesus that was taken up in heaven is going to so, so come in like manner, and when he comes, he's going to take vengeance on them that know not God. Of course, 2 Timothy 4.1 tells us that he's going to be the judge of the quick and the dead, referring to the unsaved. He is the stone that will grind the kingdoms of this world to powder, spoken of in Daniel chapter 2. Enoch spoke of him or prophesied of him. And we have that prophecy in the book of Jude, verses 14 and 15, where it says, And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these sayings, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all their ungodly among all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. You see, these are the people who had pleasure in unrighteousness. And the Lord, the Lamb of God, is beginning to open the seals of judgment and to judge mankind for his wickedness and rebellion against God, the unsaved, the nations. So that's the judge. It's the Lamb. But I want you to notice some of the judgments. If you notice, drop down to verse 2. You have, it says, And I saw, and behold, a white horse. This is the first seal that's open. A white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown, notice, was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. Now, I call this a diplomatic conqueror. He's a conqueror. It says he's a, he went forth to conquer and to and conquer it, conquering and to conquer. Uh, he comes on a white horse. Now, we know that Revelation 19 describes one coming on a white horse, and we know that to be the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, but, you know, if you compare the two, it's not the same person, obviously. Uh, this is at the beginning of the tribulation, and the Lord Jesus is coming back at the end of the tribulation to, to, at the Battle of Armageddon. Uh, this wears a crown that's given to him, and the word crown here is Stephanus, which means it's a victor's crown. Uh, and Jesus, the, the one in Revelation 19, speaking of Christ, he wears many crowns. It's a diadem. It's a kingly crown. Uh, he, this, this, this conqueror has a bow with no sword. He doesn't even have arrows. Now, what can you do with a bow without arrows? Of course, Christ has... Revelation 19 has a sword, no bow. And he's going to smite the nations with that sword. But this rider, this conqueror, what follows him is war, famine, death, and hell. Of course, the one in Revelation 19, the heavenly armies, there'll be a thousand years of peace after he comes. So who is this person? You know, a white horse speaks of majesty. A bow speaks of a warrior, a crown of a victor or a conqueror. You know, he has a, a bow, but no arrows. See, diplomacy is his means. This is the Antichrist that is being revealed. And we're told in Revelation chapter 2 that he would not be revealed until that which letteth will let. Now, if you, if you, if you look up that word let, 
in a concordance, you'll find it means that which hinders or that which restrains. So there's a restraining force in the world that's hindering the appearance of the Antichrist, and we believe that to be the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God dwells in God's people. And until God's people are taken out in the rapture of the saints, he will not be revealed. Then he'll be revealed. You know, Jesus said in John 5, 43, I am come in my Father's name, and ye receive me not. If another shall come in his own name, him ye will receive. Or she was speaking to the children of Israel at the time, and we know that according to Revelation chapter 9, that, that he's going to make a covenant with Israel for one, for one week. But this is, a, this, is a, this is a conqueror that uses diplomacy. Now, this isn't anything new. This is not a new tactic. Hitler used it. In fact, some people thought Hitler was the Antichrist. Hitler used it. Stalin used it. Khrushchev used it. Mao used it. These, these guys were all masters of diplomacy. You know, they say, they say, all of them would say they are for peace. You say, really, Pastor? They would say that? Well, sure. They would say they are for truth. Uh, Dr. Fred Swartz wrote a book called You Can Trust the Communists to Be Communists. And uh, this book is uh, somewhat dated, but it's still uh, 1960 was the first printing. But anyway, in page, page uh, 6, speaking about peace, he says this, quote, Since the communists are at war, and they are at war with anybody that's not a communist, they naturally desire peace. Wherever you find a communist, you find an advocate for, of peace. Peace is one of the golden words of their vocabulary. They have peace movements of every kind. They have peace campaigns, peace prizes, peace conferences, peace processions. Every communist is a devotee of peace. Now, most people watching the military preparations of communists, noting the enormous percentage of their budget devoted to military objects, observing their ruthless, brutal repression of any attempt by their captive nations to secure freedom, classify communists as blatant hypocrites. This is far from the truth. The communists are not hypocrites. They are sincerely and genuinely dedicated to peace. If he gave a mature communist a lie detector test and he asked if he desired peace with all his heart, he would pass with flying colors. They live for peace. They long for peace. They would willingly die for peace. But what is this peace which they desire? During the war against Japan, most Americans undoubtedly wanted peace. Peace was a thought that comforted mothers whose sons were in danger on distant battlefields. Peace was the word which sustained wives, lonely and anxious without their husbands. Peace was the goal that motivated servicemen who knew the boredom and loneliness and the danger of war. Had they been asked to define peace, they would doubtless have described it as the, ter as the termination of hostilities in the defeat of the enemy by the Allies. Not under any circumstances would victory by Japan have been turned peace. To the American people, peace meant only one thing, American victory. The communists believe they are at war. They desire peace with all their hearts. But to them, peace is that golden consummation when progressive force of communism totally overwhelms American imperialism and climaxes in communist world conquest. By definition, peace 
is the communist world conquest. Since this is true, any action that advances communist conquest is a peaceful action. When the armies of communist Chinese encompass the Tibetans, robbing them of their land and food, stimulating them to frantic, hopeless revolt, and then massacring them, they are consummating peace. When Khrushchev ordered Russian tanks into Budapest to fire into the apartment buildings, reducing them to rubble, entombing man, woman, and child, in his heart he had a song of peace. Now see, to us that sounds contradictory. But to them, see, peace is bringing everybody into subjection to them. So there's no longer any conflict. And they are also for truth. I know that sounds crazy to you and I, but he says this, quote, The communists invariably tell the truth, but it is the Marxist-Leninist truth. Those who believe that the communists will lie in the interest of communism are mistaken. In fact, it is not possible for a communist to lie in the interest of communism. By definition, if a statement is in the interest of communism, it is the truth. Justin Pilate asked the question, what is truth? Christians believe that God is truth. Truth is a quality of God himself. An absolute God created an absolute truth. Truth is. The communists affirm that this is nonsense. There is no God. There are no absolutes. Everything is relative. Truth itself is a relative of the class struggle. Lenin said the communist party is the mind of the conscience and the morals of our epoch. Uh, Proletarian morality is determined by the exigencies of the class struggle. Truth is a weapon of the class war, and any, any statement that advances communist conquest is true. Because they decide what truth is. See, to them, truth is love. Do you know, really, think about it. How many Americans think truth is relevant? You wonder why there's so many Americans embracing the progressive, and that's what the communists call themselves, progressives. That sounds like we're making progress, right? But go to a communist country and see what progress has been made. It's non-existent. But see to them, and see, this is how they come in. They, 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 they say they are for peace. They say they are for truth. They will lie. They will make trees. Hitler would make trees with, with other nations. Uh, you know, he made practically treaties with all the nations around them, turned around and invaded them. He made a treaty with Russia to divide up Poland. First, he made a treaty with Poland. Then he made a treaty with Russia to divide up Poland, and he conquered Poland, and then he tried to conquer Russia. There's, 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 a, there's, a, there's a terminology for this way of thinking. It's called casuistry. Now, in Bible Institute where I went, we called it Jesuit casuistry because it started with the Catholic Jesuits. They formed this philosophy, although it's not new with them, but it was, was developed by a Spanish Jesuit 
Louis de Molina, I guess. And, and the philosophy is this. Casuistry made it possible to sin without sinning. And I say, how do you do that? And one method was called direction de-intention. So if one sinned but had good intentions, then you had not sinned. As long as your intentions were good. It's the end justifies the means. That's what it is. I mean, Hillary leaked classified information, but she didn't intend to. That's what that is. And this conqueror is going to come in like this. He's going to come in peaceably. In fact, go to Daniel. The book of Daniel speaks a lot about this. Daniel chapter 8. <clears throat> Daniel chapter 8. Look at a couple of verses there. Daniel 8, verse 23 to 25. Um... It says, in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors are come to the full, a king of fierce countenance and understanding dark sentences shall stand up. And his power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. He shall destroy wonderfully. He shall prosper and practice. Notice that word practice. Shall destroy the mighty and holy people. And through his policy also he shall cause craft to prosper in his hand. And he shall magnify himself in his heart. And by peace shall destroy many. He shall also stand up against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without hand. Now, when it refers to the prince of princes, we're talking about the Lord Jesus. So, but he's going to use craft to prosper, and he's going to, by peace, destroy many. Look at chapter 11, chapter 11, verse 21 and uh, 32. Chapter 11, verse 21 says, In his estate shall stand up a vile person. Now, most commentators say this refers to Antiochus Epiphanes, who many believe was a type of Antichrist. Hitler was a type of Antichrist. I mean, he, he fit a lot of the descriptions of the Antichrist. But here it says, And in his estate shall stand up a vile person, whom they shall not give the honor of the kingdom, but he shall come in peaceably and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. By flatteries. Then again in verse 32, it says, And such as do wickedly against the covenant shall come, be corrupted by flatteries, but the people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. You know, so this one is going to come in with flatteries. He's going to win peaceably and, and make peace and promise peace to the nations of the world and somehow get everyone to follow him. You know, when you look at the world, and some, people, some, some would say, how can the world, can that ever be brought to pass? I mean, you have Islam that hates everybody but Islam. And you have Indian sheiks, which is, a, which is a very rigid class of Hinduism. They basically hate everyone else. But really, really, what religion doesn't hate all other religions? Catholicism does. But you know what they present themselves as? Masters of peace. You know why they're doing it? 
because they don't have power to do otherwise. The same reason, you know, do you know how that's, that's how Islam gets a foothold? You know, think about all the Islamic organizations that are here in the United States. Are they out marching and demonstrations and talking about Sharia law and all this? No. Oh, no, they're for peace. They're for peace. They're for peace. You know, some of them are starting to be a little bit transparent. Like a few of them that got elected, you know, they're starting, their anti-Semitism is starting to come out. You know why that's starting to come out? Because there's becoming more and more and more of them. And the more of them there becomes in, in, our, in our country, the more power they get, the more they're going to push that and the more they're going to force it on us. They're already tried in Detroit and other places because there are, they are a, a great number of them there. But see, they come in by deception, and this, this, is, this is conquered by deception. It is the old devil, the slanderer. You know, this is, this is the, the thing that he has always done. He is, it is his delusion. You know, they talk about peace. Even, in, even Paul, when he wrote to the church at Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 3, he said, that, uh, verse 3, it says, When they shall say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as to prevail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. You know, the world, all the world religions are talking peace. Catholicism is now trying to get together, and they are having meetings and dialogue with leaders of the Muslim community. You're the most violent religion in the world. Islam. Catholicism is much better. Both have slaughtered millions of people. And to deceive multitudes with their with their wiles. And that's the work of the devil. You know, Jesus said in John eight forty four, Ye are of your father the devil. A murderer. He is a murderer from the beginning. And he is a liar and a father of it. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 13 through 15, Paul described false teachers, false prophets, as angels of light, just like the devil himself. In first, uh, 2 Corinthians 11, verse, verse 13, he says, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light, there is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. You know, as we're going to see when we get further into the book of Revelation, that the, the Catholic Church has a predominant, I believe, a predominant part in the one world church and the one world government. It's not them alone, but they have a predominant part. They're a, world re- a leading world religion. And these world religions are looking for somebody that can bring them all together. You know why they all want to come together? Why they want to come together in, in, in Genesis chapter 11 at the Tower of Babel? Who were they opposing? Why did they all want to come together? In opposition against God. And so this conqueror is an attempt to bring all the nations of the world into one, one against God. 
you know, the reality is, and, you know, and again, we're, we're seeing this happen in our world. You know, the, the, the world is coming here. The other nations of the world are coming here. But God set the boundaries of their habitations. And I believe the diversity of nations preserves man from self-destruction because nations judge other nations and keep other nations in check. But you see, we're starting to see that trying to be eliminated. And that's what this is. This is the Antichrist who will bring all the nations of the world together. He's going to have the solution to all the world's ills. At least he thinks he is. Diplomacy will be the thing. But I want to show second that but the second thing we see here, and, and I'm almost done, so you know, don't get alarmed. But uh, the second seal, verse 3 and 4, we see a departure of peace. You know, he comes in peaceably. He's a diplomatic conqueror. But very quickly, we see a departure of peace in verse 3 and 4. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, come and see. There ran another horse that was red. Power was given unto him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth. That they should kill one another. And it was given unto him a great sword. So the second seal is another horse, and it's red. Red speaks of bloodshed. The sword speaks of death and execution. And so this time of peace is short-lived. You know, I, I've often wondered, you know, I haven't spent a lot of time trying to figure it out. Are we already halfway into the tribulation? Peace, peace time's over. In Revelation 9, it says he's going to make a covenant with Israel, but in the middle of the week, he's going to break that covenant, and then there's going to be chaos. You know, the, 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 you know, the, by the way, the book of Revelation is not chronological. The events aren't necessarily chronological, as we're going to see that, but there, there are going to be some things that are going to be talked about later. But anyway, there's, so there's this departure of peace. You know, you can't have peace without the Lord. God is the author of peace. In, in Isaiah 57, 19, 20, he says, I create the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to him that is afar off and to him that is near, saith the Lord, and I will heal him. But the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. Jesus said in John 16, 33, 33 These things have I spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So there's a departure of peace. And then thirdly, we see a devastating famine in verses 5 and 6. When he opened the third seal, I heard a third beast say, Come and see, and behold, a lone black horse. He that sat in him had a pair of balances in his hand. And I heard the voice of the midst of the four beasts say, A measure of wheat for a penny, and three measures of barley for a penny. And see thou hurt not the oil and the wine. So as a result of this one world, one government domination, and government control, eradication of free market and capitalism, combined with wars, there's a great reduction of productivity. Hey. One of the most fertile nations in the world is under communist control. And when the communists took it over, couldn't feed itself. We're talking about Russia and the Ukraine. Ukraine was referred to as the breadbasket of the world. I mean, they have fertile, fertile land. But because of government control, government run everything, nobody wants to do anything. 
You can't prosper there because everything's under government control. There's no such thing as free enterprise. In other words, if I want to make more money here, I work harder. I go find myself a better job. Or I maybe educate myself so I can get a better job, so I can make more money. Because profitability is based on your productivity. But in Russia? Hmm. See, communism wants to make everybody the same. I mean, as far as they're concerned, the weak could stand in the field. Good waste. Who cares? I'm still going to live off the same government that I just like if I didn't. If I did harvest it, so why work for it? And there's gonna, this is going to be a time of, of great, devastating famine. You know, a, a, a quart or a, a measure of wheat for a penny, three measures of barley for a penny. A penny is considered in the Bible a day's wages, and a, and a measure of wheat is enough for a meal. Three measures of barley is enough for three meals. So your day's wage would buy your meal. If you're buying wheat, it would only get you one meal. If you're buying barley, which is a cheaper commodity, it would get you three meals a day. So we would be down to bare necessities. But notice it said, touch not the oil and the wine. Those are the, the pleasurable things for the rich people. It's a devastating famine. Death prevails. Notice verses 7 and 8. And when he'd opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth beast say, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and his name that sat on him was death, and hell followed him. And power was given on him with a fourth part of the earth to kill with a sword, with hunger, and with death, and with the beasts of the earth. And, and so death prevails during this time uh, that follows. You know, we have sword that speaks of war, hunger, mass starvation, death. And the word death here actually refers to being put to death. For example, it's used, same word is used in Matthew 10, 21, where it says, And the brother shall deliver up the brother to death, and the father the child, and the children shall rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. It's used in Luke 24, 20, where it says, How the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death. So the idea of death here is to be put to death. And, of course, in context, verses 9 through 11 talk about the many that were slain for the word of God, the testimony that they held. So there's going to be death. There's also going to be death by beasts of the earth. Now, some think maybe that that, uh, uh, this referred to the Antichrist himself, you know, because they are considered beasts. God describes them as beasts. But, But it says beasts of the earth, so I think we're talking about really the animals. The revolt of the animal kingdom. But think about this. How many people have dogs today? I mean, there's dogs everywhere. How do you think that's going to go when lots of the owners are dead and there's no food to eat? What do you think those dogs are going to do? They'll become vicious dogs. And then there's going to be disease, rabies. And we also, of course, there's, there's an increased number of protected animals that are vicious. We have birds of prey that would carry off babies. You know, wolves and all kinds of things that people are 
domesticating. Not only domesticating, we're importing them into places to get them started again into our ecosystem to make our ecosystem balance. I don't know, we've lived you know, a long time without them, but all of a sudden we need them, you know. In Yellowstone, they got wolves and that are causing habit. So, so these are the things that are going to take place, and it says one-fourth of the world will be killed. Now, there are seven billion people in the world. One-fourth of that, if I did my calculations right, is 1.7 billion people. You know that's more than the population of the Europe, of Europe, United States, and South America together. It's more than Europe, USA, and South America together are going to die. There's only 70 to 85 million people died as a result of World War One. That included people that died from deaths war-related like disease and famine, not just killed in battle. 1.75 billion people. And we see a demonstration of God's power here in verses 12 through 14, and I'm not going to read that but uh, for sake of time. But the lamb, you know, it talks about an earthquake. The, the sun becomes black as sackcloth from the ashes, I suppose, of the earthquake. Uh, the moon becomes as blood, stars of heaven fall on the earth. You know, when I was reading, I, I thought about when, when, we, was, when I was a kid at home on the farm, we had some big apple trees. And we would pick most of the apples off of them. And then, then us boys would crawl up in the trees and climb out on the limbs you know, that would still hold us good. And we would shake them, you know, shake them real hard to get all the rest of them off. And we'd hear this on the ground of the apples, like rumble. You know, and God's going to just take this earth. And he, the Lord, the Lamb is going to take this earth and He's just going to shake it. And the heavens. And the stars, the Bible says, the stars of heavens shall fall like figs, untimely figs, when it's shaken in the wind. And every island, mountain and island were moved out of its place. We have a demonstration here of God's power, but I want you to notice the cry of the deceived in verses 15 through 17. This is the thing that, that baffles my mind. And the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the chief captains and the mighty men and every bondman and every freedman hid themselves in dens and the rocks and the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come and who shall be able to stand? They're really surrounding us. Hide us from him. We don't want to see him. Yeah, don't people today have this idea? Well, you know, as long as we don't see him, as long as we don't know, we're not accountable. But I think the Lord's reminding him here in this passage and in this context that the heavens declare the glory of God. We are without excuse. Notice they did not cry out, have mercy. I repent. In fact, later on we're going to see that it says they repent, it says explicitly they, they repented not, yet they repented not of their deeds. Of course, this is a prophecy of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 2 speaks of this time 
where it says he's going to shake, he's going to shake the heavens and the earth. Uh, and, and then at the end of that passage in Isaiah 2 and verse, verse uh, uh, 22, this is, this is how he concludes that. So Isaiah chapter 2, as soon as I find it here, verse, verse 22. And, and they're going to say, you know, go into the clefts of the rocks, into the tops of the ragged rocks for fear of the Lord, for the glory of his majesty, when he arises to shake terribly the earth. And then it says this, Cease ye from man whose breath is in his nostrils, for wherein is he to be accounted of? Isaiah 55, 7 says this, Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return on the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. You know, the world is set against God. You know, communism, they believe in truth, their truth. They're deluded. They are set against God. And God is going to judge them for their wickedness. You know, they, you might, you know, a lot of people think, well, communism doesn't worship a God. It is a religion. It's a worship of man. And they need to cease from man whose breath is in his nostrils. It's a reminder to us we need to turn away from ourselves, turn away from our trust in man, and we need to put our trust in the Lord who will have mercy, who has the power to pardon our sins. That's the message we need to give to a lost and dying world. Only God can pardon our iniquity. Only God, through the Lord Jesus Christ, can save us from the wrath of the Lamb that is to come. And it is coming. It may be very soon. And so, God is going to pour out His wrath on an unbelieving world. We need to continue to be a witness and testimony. But are we prepared for that time? Let's pray.